Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we are going to be talking about music with Nikki Six. That's right, from Motley Crue. We're going to hear about his days growing up in various small towns where he had big dreams of playing rock and roll. Those are some dreams that really came true. They've sold over 100 million records, if you can believe that. Then we're going to be chatting with legendary filmmaker Todd Haynes about his new documentary, The Velvet Underground, which documents that band that did not sell 100 million albums, but has had a huge cultural impact. Plus, then we're going to be hearing some actual music from Melanie Charles. Her new album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women, is a love letter to the underappreciated labor of black women in music, and it's going to be amazing. In fact, this whole episode is going to be amazing, so don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? (laughs) It's going well. Trying to stay dry here in Portland where it's been very rainy. All right. We have a little edition of Station Location Identification Examination to play. This is where I'm going to give you a place in America and you have to try to figure out where I'm talking about, okay? Okay. I'm ready. All right. Since uh, we're going to be talking about music on the show this week, Mm -hmm. this city is home to the first FM broadcasting license, which was back in 1941, the largest songwriting festival in the world, and over 150 live music venues. <gasps> is it Austin, Texas? Just go northeast of there. Dallas, Texas. Up a state or two. Oh. <laughs> like out of the state of Texas, but stop when you get to the state of Tennessee. <laughs> it's Nashville. It's Nashville. Hey! Where we're on WPLN radio right there in Music City, USA, Nashville. Uh, That makes sense for the first FM broadcasting license because I watched that Ken Burns country music. Mm -hmm. The Opry really kind of drove early radio, if I'm not mistaken. After I watched that documentary, I just wandered around humming May the Circle Be Unbroken by the Carter family. (laughs) Well, Nashville, that's amazing. That is. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in in Nashville and, and all across the U.S. of A. All right. Are you ready to do the radio show, Elena? I am ready. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, Motley Crue rocker Nikki Six. I got guys breathing down my neck that want my gig. I'm not giving you my gig. And filmmaker Todd Haynes. 
We felt like we were so privileged to be making a film using other films. With music from Melanie Charles. But of course, me being the artsy person that I am, I wasn't doing regular remixes. I was really doing reimaginings. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Fuck it, Oh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Yeah, you're already rocking out. This is going to be a yeah. rocking episode of Livewire this week. We're going to be talking to Nikki Six from Motley Crue. We've also got a listener question that we've got lots of answers rolling in on. The question on the subject of music was, what's your go-to karaoke song? Mm -hmm. And we are going to uh, hear those responses coming up in just a little bit. First, though, of course, it is time for the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Well, in honor of Nikki Six being on here, I had to pick something totally metal. So, of course, I picked <laughs> libraries. Oh, sure. <laughs> libraries can be metal. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you can get several of Nikki Six's books at mm -hmm. most of your public libraries. I love libraries. I love them mm -hmm. more than anything. I'm on the board of my local libraries foundation. Uh, they're one of my favorite things in the world. I think they do so much good. And there's this thing that's been happening at libraries across the country that's really worth mentioning, especially since it just happened at the New York Public Library this month, which is, of course, you know, one of the country's biggest libraries. I was just staring at it in Bryant Park a couple of days ago, taking in the grandeur that is the New York Public Library. It's got those two big lions out front. Yep. Is that right? Yep. The only thing better than a library is a library with two big cats out front, right? Yes. It tells you how metal <laughs> that library is going to be. That's right. Well, listen to this. So the New York Public Library is the most recent in a string of libraries across the country that have eliminated late fees. Oh, nice. Yeah. There is an initiative that started several years ago by the American Library Association, which began urging libraries to review their policies because late fees are punitive. They add a kind of air of being in troubleness, right, to what should be a much more wholesome act of checking out resources at the library. So in that respect, they create kind of a barrier to access. And also some people just can't afford a mounting late fee. So and, and this is the thing that really interested me. Uh, a bunch of studies showed that they don't really generate that much revenue for the library. That was always why I thought we had late fees was to make up for the cost of something, to pay for something. Really, they don't generate enough revenue to make an impact on the library's bottom line. Mm. So really, they're just like a big wall in between these great public resources and members of the community that might need them most. That is such a good change in how they do business. And it means I can return to the Green Lake Public Library. I was wondering. Possibly, where I've got, uh, let's say, some unsettled <laughs> business involving a, a copy of Ramona Quimby, age eight. Well, I don't know about Green Lake, but Boston, San Diego, Chicago, and my own library here in Corvallis, Oregon have all recently eliminated late fees. Now the New York Public Library has followed suit, and hopefully you'll be off the hook soon, Luke. That is awesome news. <laughs> I have some good news involving uh, a, a pretty old pug named Noodle. <gasps> Are you up to speed on what's been going on with 
no bones days, Elena? Oh, no, but um, I am here for all pug related content. If they put two pugs out in front of the New York Public Library, they'd have to change <laughs> it to the New York Puglic Library, but I would totally be into it. <laughs> so this guy named Jonathan Graziano has a TikTok account, and he's also got this 13-year-old rescue pug named Noodle. And, you know, 13's pretty old for a pug. And so Jonathan started doing this thing every morning where he would go to Noodle's dog bed and he would stand Noodle up like on Noodle's little legs. And then he would wait to see if Noodle stayed standing or if Noodle decided to just collapse in a ball. And when Noodle stands, he calls it Bones Day, like he has bones. And when he just decides to lay back down, he calls it No Bones Day, which is he's just being like a jellyfish. And millions of people have started watching this on TikTok every morning to know how their day is going to go. I'm going to play you a little audio of today's update on what's going on with Noodle. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to yet another round of No Bones, the game where we find out if my 13-year-old pug woke up with bones. And as a result, we'll find out what kind of day we're going to have. Now, we're at Grandma's house. He's comfortable here. He's got a brand new bed. It's raining out. We've got a fire going. I I don't know where this is going to go. All right, so he stands Noodle up, and we're going to find out what kind of day we're going to have. Oh my god! I, oh my god! It's a Bones Day, you guys! I can't <gasps> believe it. I thought I thought for sure we were set up for a No Bones Day, but Noodle surprises us all, and we must make something of our days. So make sure to treat yourself today. Go! Oh my gosh! Go have Greek food by a river. Get the couch you've always wanted. Buy the couch, and you know what? Call someone and tell them you love them. Even if you don't, Aww. you have to like love them, love them. But like call them and you know just like say something nice. Treat yourself. So today is a Bones Day, <laughs> but even on a No Bones Day, Jonathan says No Bones doesn't mean it's a bad day. It just means it's a day to take care of yourself and everybody else mm. to be sort of aware. So the uh, Colorado Avalanche of the National Hockey League, they lost the other night and they said it was because they were having a No Bones Day. Oh my God. Also, the governor of Louisiana was encouraging Louisianans to get vaccinated and he said, come on, it's a Bones Day. <gasps> we all got to get out there and get vaccinated. I love this. I don't believe in astrology or any of that stuff, but I deeply feel like I'm going to have a good day if we get a Bones Day. And that is the best news that I've heard this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over here to the show. He is a founding member of Motley Crue. He's also a three-time New York Times bestselling author, and he's a recovering drug addict who now works to help other addicts in recovery. He's also got a new book out. It's called The First 21, How I Became Nikki Six, and it follows his transformation from Idaho farm boy to genuine rock icon. Here's something I didn't know I'd be saying as the host of a public radio show, Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Welcome to Livewire. Hey, what's happening? Woo! So this book starts out, you're sitting in Dodger Stadium watching a baseball game, and you realize, wow, this is one of the few really iconic venues that we haven't played as Motley Crue. Yeah. And wouldn't it have been nice if, if we could? But but you all had agreed you weren't going to play anymore, and yeah. so that seemed like it was kind of unlikely to happen. But then you changed your mind? It, it was very unlikely to happen, and we signed that contract so there would never be any version of Motley Crue that wouldn't be the one that started together in 1981. I guess the only way out of it was if all four of us wanted to do that, but we didn't think we ever would. So that guarantee that we could kind of put an end to something in a positive way. 
when the Motley Crue movie The Dirt came out, then we had started working together, writing music and spending time on the set. And there's a really good feeling amongst us, but still no idea like we were going to go tour again. That never came up until I got a phone call from our agent and said, Live Nation wants to know if you want to do some shows around the movie. And I was like, I, you know, we've played every arena on earth 35 <laughs> times. And I'm kind of digging where I'm at in my life. And it's a lot of work to get together for eight arena shows, even though it would be special for the fans. And he said, excuse me. I said, stadiums. And uh. I went, oh, oh. <laughs> like Dodger Stadium, potentially? Yeah, like Dodger <laughs> Stadium. So got on the phone with the guys. They're like, we have a contract. What are you thinking? I go, I don't know. What are you thinking? Eventually, we all talked. We agreed to do the eight shows. Def Leppard came on board, partnered up <laughs> with us. So it's Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jett. What a, like, summer outside, great time. They put eight more shows on sale, sold out. Eight more shows, sold out. Rumor was they're going to come back and offer us the world with this package. And mm. then I'm literally driving down the freeway. And I hear about COVID-19 mm -hmm. and it wasn't, it was within only a week that I pulled all my kids out of college. Everybody like, you know, had to come to the house. We are in isolation and, and every, everything changed. But what didn't change is that we still want to go out and tour. So we were going to tour this year. And uh, obviously we weren't ready with the Delta variant. We feel, mm -hmm. we feel comfortable going next year. I was so fascinated just to read about what your preparation is yes. for one of these big stadium tours, just like the physical, the mental, uh, the emotional. Like, what do you have to do to get ready to go go do that? <laughs> I mean, I, I told my wife, we get back uh, up to Wyoming and December 1st, I got to start training. I'm on stage June 19th. That, that, wow. You got to be stage ready at least a month before that. And we got band rehearsals. And I said, I said, I'm not looking forward to it because it's hard. I mean, I remember when, when I was in full training mode for the tour, we went to see a movie and my wife ordered some nachos. She got a <laughs> glass of red wine and she goes, do you want anything, baby? And I, man, aren't those butterfingers? Oh man, I'd love that popcorn. I go, no, I got my little, my little bag with eight almonds in it. Oh no. It's <laughs> like, oh man. She's like, okay. And water, you know, woo heavy metal but you know what <laughs> i got guys breathing down my neck that want my gig i'm not giving you my gig you can't have my crown you can't stand on my stage and, and if you want to i'm gonna fight you for it so that I, yeah, that's why like for me when we're gonna go on tour i i don't want to i don't want to half-ass it out there and especially yeah. if we're coming out of retirement no way yeah. Right. And it's like three hours of cardio and weights. Is that right? To get ready for a stadium show? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot. And, and then, you know, as, uh, as you do fun things like break guitars for a living for over 30 <laughs> years, you have torn rotators. I had my hip replaced. I just recently had my back fused. Whoa. Like, it's like, you know, I thought when I was 25 or 35, diving off the stage into the audience, you, you land on the cement and you get up and it's like, come on, let's do it again, you know. But uh, that stuff adds up and you kind of I equate it to being like a, an athlete, you know, after, yeah. after 50. Mm -hmm. This is Livewire. We've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to have more of our conversation with Nikki Six. Don't go anywhere. 
Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Right over there is Elena Passarello. We're talking to Motley Crue co-founder Nikki Six about his new book, The First 21, How I Became Nikki Six. Really, this book is the first 21 years of your life and, and your, your childhood and your sort of early days in Los Angeles, um, a childhood that involved a lot of moving around and not a lot of stability. You have this Part of the book, which you say is the recipe for making a rock star. You say, take a child, the more impressionable and imaginative, the better. Add a dash of neglect or abandonment, shake vigorously and let sit. Does that basically describe your childhood? Yeah, in a lot of ways. But also the interesting thing about going back and taking a, uh, a, a bird's eye view, a helicopter view of a time in your life, you get to see things a little bit different. And because we went all the way back, even to my birth, there's discrepancies. My mother, mm. uh, as you know, the book went on, it isn't about being, you know, disrespectful to my mom and rest in peace. She did her best that she could do with the tools that she had. Um, but you know, telling me things when I was super young and impressionable about my father and about uh, even like my birth, like I, I was never supposed to be named Frank. You know, he, the bad guy, named me Frank. She wanted me to be named something else. My mom was always- She wanted you to be named Nikki Six. <laughs> yes, she did. It was it was Nikki Six or Axl Rose, you know. But, uh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I went back and I started talking to my family. I started talking to my aunt, my mom's sister, and they're like, that's not true. Hmm. And, and you carry around this suitcase full of misinformation on your left side and on your right side. It's like resentment and that's- this stuff gets heavy, you know, and when I got sober, I got to look at a lot of that stuff. And that's what the heroin diaries was about. Obviously addiction, but recovery. And mm -hmm. this was a, that, you know, those first 21 years are so impressionable. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and you, and you go back and look at that and you're like, okay, like I learned a lot. I also think those first 21 years for, for probably all of us right here, there was a moment where you're like, that's what I want to do. 
Like, mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. I talk to authors. They're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I remember when I was 10 and I read this and I was like, that's what I want to do for a living. Or, you know, a kid gets his first basketball and he sees his heroes on TV and next thing you know, he's the next, you know, NBA champion. So I think those first 21 years are super important into uh instill that into the reader that not only can they reminisce, but if they pass it on to their own children or people read it that are young, that, you know, going for the dream is the right thing to do. You know, when you, when you, when you quit, you get what you get, you know, don't quit, go for it. And that's what I did. What was that moment for you in your first 21 years where you started to really see like music and rock music as kind of your way to a different life? I talked to a comedian recently and he told me that when he discovered comedy, it was the first time he didn't feel like an alien. Mm. Like he was like, oh, yeah, that's like my tribe. And um, I remember, you know, we moved around a lot. We moved from place to place to place. And every time I'd have a best friend, we would leave. And, you know, uh, my grandparents were poor, hardworking people. Grandfather was a mechanic, worked in a gas station. So we were just barely getting by. And when I was young and and starting to not really feel like I had any roots, it was music that was the thing I was like, that's what I'm missing, you know, hearing it on the radio. And um, as funny as this sounds, there's a song by Jimmy Dean named Big Bad John. The sausage guy? Yeah, the sausage (laughs) guy. Before he was the sausage guy. he was a singer. He was a singer. And he wrote this song. song. (laughs) And I was in Twin Falls, Idaho, and I would hear this song. And it's really no different than a Bruce Springsteen song or a Bob Dylan song or a million other um, storytellers and poets and stuff. And it wasn't just a pop song. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like a simple song with a verse and chorus. And I remember calling the radio station all the time going, I need more of that. I need more of that. And, you know, later we would discover more of that and like Jim Croce and people like that. But I was also drawn to Deep Purple and mm-hmm. Black Sabbath, and Elton John, and Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, you know, like when the New York Dolls album first came out, and very few people know who the New York Dolls are, but I shocked the system. And I remember going, well, if a band could sound like this and could look kind of like that, I mean, that was like the beginning of the yeah. recipe for what I would end up doing, you know, and that's, I think, why mm-hmm. writing books works for me is I feel like I'm a bit of a, a storyteller. I'm drawn to it. And that was in those first 21 years. I was probably, I don't know, nine, 10. Mm. Those storytelling songs. Yeah. They, that's yeah. what hooked you. Yeah. Yeah. You write in this book that you have always really uh, been interested in the work of Bukowski and that when you write songs, when you come up with song titles, you're trying to sort of come up with something that really punches through. And you have written, you know, the most iconic Motley Crue songs. We are fans of Livewire, since that's literally the name of yeah. this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got we to talk about that. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I actually took that from uh, a Stars album, which is a band oh. a lot of people don't wow. know a lot about the band Stars. Yeah. But anyway. Bukowski. Bukowski. Um, I think if it doesn't sting, what's the point? Like, I don't think you just need another vanilla song title or another vanilla lyric or another vanilla band. I, I just think that sometimes the rawer the better, you know, shout at mm-hmm. the devil. There's so much in that. It's not even about the devil. 
Like, I've been trying to tell the media that for 40 years. There's, there's no Satan was, involved here. And by it the was way, definitely banned in my evangelical Christian home. I'll tell you that much. And, by, and you could have told your mom it wasn't with the devil. Even if it was the devil, it's not with right. him. We're shouting yeah. at him. But, you know, yeah. kickstart my heart. Doctor, feel good. Life is beautiful. Home sweet home. Th- things that are sticky. And mm-hmm. um, what's interesting about the concept of sticky is I, I didn't know that I was so interested in marketing. You're like reading Alice Cooper's biography. I mean, you were like studying this, right? <laughs> so I'm studying, yeah, I'm studying the business. I'm studying how to not get ripped off. I'm studying these bands on vinyl. And I don't think there's anything unique about me. I think that if you could actually line up 10 of your favorite artists, they might all tell you the same thing. I think we're all fans. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm still a fan. Like Aerosmith was my band. They'll always be my band. And mm-hmm. there's something about having your band, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I love that Motley Crue is that to people. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess, I mean, you uh, have had this experience that so many people fantasize about of standing on the stage, you know, in front of 50,000, 60,000 people who are screaming their brains out. What is that actually like from your perspective? I mean, can you even take that all in when you're up there or are you just thinking about the, the playing the next note? Like, what's that experience like as someone who's actually had it? The first night, you're thinking about the next note. The second night, you're thinking about why is your left foot moving like that? The third night, you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. And about the fourth night, the band is in the groove, in the pocket. Mm. It's, it is so sexy. It's sweaty. It's hot. And you see the crowd, and it just keeps getting better and better because it's this actual living, breathing animal that's happening. And they're singing back words that you wrote about something mm. you experienced. I mean, I feel like, I feel like now in my life, it's just like, wow. Um, I don't think in my life it was ever like, whoa, we're, we're like badasses. I, it does feel badass, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know I hope I mean? it does. Sounds it, badass. It feels <laughs> badass. Um, but um, now it's just like, wow, like, I can't believe I look over and it's the same damn guys. Wow. Like, what are they doing here? It's been 40 years. Like, I don't even know how we still know each other. I know my band longer than I know anybody in my life. Wow. Except for a couple family members. Now, now, you know, I see grandparents, parents and kids out there. Cool. It's pretty, yeah. it's, it's rad. But then sometimes I'm like. Don't you want to cover the kids' ears for this next part, <laughs> Right. For girls, girls, girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, uh, this book is a really fun uh, and uh, informative read, particularly if you're a fan of Motley Crue and of Nikki Six's. The book is The First 21. Nikki Six, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you. Lynn Fantastic. Yeah. You guys are great. Have a great rest of your day. That was Nikki Six Woo-hoo! right here on Livewire. How nice was he with, like, the makeup and the fire coming out of the mm-hmm. base sometimes. I think I was a little intimidated, but then that guy just couldn't have been sweeter. He was wonderful and also uh, looks pretty great for 62, I gotta say. There was a lot of post-interview conversation around the skincare routine that Nikki Six is following and how do we all get on that? Nikki's new book is called The First 21, How I Became Nikki Six, and it's out now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Christopher Buderlein, 
of Portland, Oregon. Christopher is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we're very thankful for uh, because it's the way that we're able to keep doing the show. So a big cheers to Christopher this week for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. I'd like to ask the Livewire listeners a question each week. This week, because we're talking to musicians and talking about music, we asked the listeners, what is your go-to karaoke song? Which I feel says kind of a lot about a person, or at least how a person, you know, comes off in public. Elena has Mm -hmm. been collecting up those responses. What are the listeners saying are their go-to songs? Burbank, listen, the responses, I think, can be divided into some very Mm. distinct categories because people have different karaoke strategies. Right. Like, for example, Charles picks Sweet Caroline because there's not a dry eye in the house, Charles says, from laughter, of course. And you can imagine everybody singing along. That's the group participation. I unironically sing along with Sweet Caroline. And when it gets to the bum, bum, bum part... I mean, that's about as alive as you can feel. See, that category is, I'm going to get the audience on my team, right? Yep, exactly. So it's like, oh, my performance is not necessarily at the center of the experience. I'm going to turn the whole room into their time up on this karaoke stage. That's my strategy to kind of take the emphasis off of my questionable singing abilities (laughs) and take that burden and share it with the entire bar. All right, what's another go-to song and why from one of our listeners? Aaron has selected No Scrubs by TLC because Aaron says there's, quote, no actual singing required, which is Mm -hmm. another strategy, right? Like a talky song, Devil Went Down to Georgia is on this list. You know, we were talking in the break about Young MC's Bust a Move. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And again, limited singing, if any. Mm hmm. Okay, what's another go-to karaoke number for one of our listeners? Okay, some of these strategies are getting a little weird, but (laughs) (laughs) Casey's uh, go-to karaoke is I would do anything for love, but I won't do that by meatloaf because it's over five minutes long. So one strategy could be like hog that mic. And that's when you do your Baba O'Reilly, your meatloaf, Mm -hmm. your... In a Gata de Vida. (laughs) Which doesn't even have any words. (laughs) Well, right. But you're standing there for, I think, about 12 minutes. Meatloaf is one of the number one offenders of overly long songs. Paradise Mm -hmm. by the Dashboard Light. Yeah, that one's always that one. I mean, you can honestly go to a different bar, sign up on their karaoke list, (laughs) sing your song, come back to the original bar, and they're still in that song. My strategy is the opposite. Shortest song possible. And you know what the Mm -hmm. shortest song possible that you can sing is? It's the Golden Girls theme song. And who doesn't love that? Another short one that I am a fan of, Mm -hmm. Run Around Sue. Mm. That one, I think it's like one minute and 45 seconds. As soon as everybody is like into the groove, it's over. You leave them wanting more. But it's got that trick beat in it. She likes to travel around. Yeah. So if you miss that beat, I mean, I don't even know. Well, that's why I practice about four days a week. I practice it at a bar (laughs) where there's nobody. And then on Fridays and Saturdays, I'm ready to present it to the (laughs) to the denizens of Portland. All right. Thank you very much, Elena. Also, thanks to everyone who wrote in with their karaoke songs. We are going to reveal next week's question at the end of this show. So stick around for that. Our next guest is best known for his several Academy Award nominated films, including Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and also Carol. Uh, He made the amazing film Velvet Goldmine, which he's sort of returning to in a way with this new project of his. It's a documentary titled The Velvet Underground about, you guessed it, 
the band, the Velvet Underground. It's about how they came about, uh, how they fell apart, and why we're still talking about them all these years later. Todd Haynes, welcome to Livewire. Thanks, Luke. Great to be on Livewire. Um, were you a huge uh, Velvet Underground fan uh, before getting into making this film? No, I, I never really liked their music. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what all the to-do is about. No, I, I, I was a major, major Velvet Underground fan. And yeah, it's a, I, I consider the music and the discovery of the music, you know, which is always, I think most people find it, you know, kind of out of order. You know, they kind of they find it circuitously. They find mm -hmm. it kind of through a friend's recommendation or because Bowie put started to perform White Light, White Heat and, and uh, you know, Waiting for the Man and his Ziggy shows. Mm -hmm. You find it in a way that sort of makes it feel like your own discovery. And I think that would be true even if you were in the 1960s in New York City, where you still felt like part of a sort of secret society of very privileged art makers mm -hmm. in a very unique time and place, you know? And you knew a little more than the people around you. And mm -hmm. uh, and part of that was experiencing this band. I, I think this film is so great. It's sort of a tone piece almost. I mean, it's mm -hmm. sort of, it's it's linear in that it's, it's introducing the members of the band and their career, but it's also kind of non-linear in the sort of visual way that it's presented. I mean, it's just a really interesting piece of filmmaking. Did you have an idea for the picture in your mind before you started or, or what we see in this film? Is that just what evolved in the editing process? Well, of course, you know, everything that one says about the documentary process is true. You really are writing it as you go and you're conceiving it as you go. And it's a circular process where you keep dipping back into the well of the material that you've collected or the interviews that you've done. But that said, I had a very strong desire to make this a visual experience, this film. Mm -hmm. And I knew that this band was uniquely connected to this moment in avant-garde film, unlike any band you could, you could think of, mm -hmm. right? That, that, that they were so intrinsically apart, not of just the Warhol scene, you know, there were all of these people who were making films and showing series at the Cinematheque with Jonas Mikas. And the, the Velvet Underground were, were, for a time, kind of a house band for the Cinematheque screenings. And so this offered so many opportunities visually. And right away, that was my kind of creative vision for what the film might be like. You know, what I felt in my editors, Afonso Gonsalves and Adam Kernitz, we felt like we were so privileged to be making a film using other films and other filmmakers in the storytelling and that we could really honor the range of styles that were being explored by people working outside of conventional narrative filmmaking at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have all this amazing footage. A lot of it's, you know, from the factory and other things. But as far as a Velvet Underground show you know, where they sort of sat on a stage and were filmed in what we would consider normal concert lighting. Uh, was it hard to find stuff like that? Does that kind of thing even exist? It, it doesn't exist for this band. Mm. It, it's, it's sort of what I knew right away. As soon as I said yes to doing this, I'm like, there's no traditional material associated with this band, period. Go. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and what there is, 
But what there is, is the cinema of Andy Warhol. And I knew that that in and of itself, even though I knew probably those films better than I knew a lot of these other films that we used to kind of weave through this documentary, um, I knew that even that cachet of material was going to be deep and was going to require and invite incredible penetration and exploration, and it did. And so, and one of our first endeavors was to reach out to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, to go there, to hang out with those guys, to, to hang out with the archivist, Greg Pierce, and to let him start to show me the treasures, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he certainly did. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're interviewing Todd Haynes about his new film, The Velvet Underground. Um, there is an amazing line about Lou Reed in the film where somebody uh, says he was talented beyond his talent, <laughs> which I think perfectly encapsulates why he was so watchable and listenable, even though on paper he did not have the most conventionally in tune voice or the hottest guitar licks. Yeah. I mean, look, Lou brought something very raw and visceral to the band and to all of his music. That said, he was the most extraordinary songwriter and lyricist and ultimately became this extraordinary guitar player. So his evolution as a artist continued to evolve. But at the very beginning, it was like that rawness was meeting with the the sort of avant-garde virtuosity of, of John Cale and a very different kind of trajectory in music that brought him from Wales to the US. So the two of them collided in all of these unexpected ways and it changed both of them. And ultimately that's what I think it's described in the film. It's what all great bands are, is more than the sum of their parts. Lou Reed is a a pretty complicated figure. I mean, depending on which biography you pick up, um, what were you feeling was your responsibility to kind of accurately portray him as somebody who definitely uh, was a person who was really struggling with things. Well, Lou Reed is a, one of our great artists. And with that, in his temperament, in his upbringing, in his unique character, there was a lot of tempestuousness and a lot of layers of what sounds like from people who knew him, even from the earliest years, defenses that he would mm-hmm. use with a, with a measure of hostility to protect himself from pain and vulnerability and insecurity. And that seems to have described him no matter who you read through most of his career. So it wasn't just like rock and roll behavior. This was stuff in the character, in the sort of DNA of this very special and unique person. Um, Doesn't mean it was easy to, to be around, but you know, I think what's, Amazing is what's so clear to me is that this pain, these conflicts, he put into the music right away. You know, he wrote heroin in high school. Wow. And it's all in that song. And that's how the Velvet Underground were so different and distinguished themselves so coherently from so much other kinds of stuff that was going on in the 1960s, even in a very robust, incredibly productive period for for popular art and music very few people were talking about that kind of pain that kind of ambivalence about being alive the kind of need to like want to check out on certain kinds of drugs and check out from the world 
and explore some of these darker territories. It feels a little bit like Lou Reed's musical journey kind of came full circle. I mean, he starts out as, as, as in the film, he, he says he wants to be a rock star. He's writing, you know, poppy songs. Yeah. And then you have the Velvet Underground with this very kind of avant-garde sound and people don't know quite what to make of it. And then towards the end, he starts to write these just absolute pop gems, mm -hmm. you know, things like Walk on the Wild Side and, and Sweet Jane. I mean, was that always in there? I mean, was it, did he ultimately get to where he wanted to be, which was to be a rock and roll star writing pop songs? I mean, I think he was able to touch all of those different territories and some, and it's similar to David Bowie, you know, I think somebody who was always interested in exploring art and poetry and literature and finding influences outside of popular art to inform him and guide him, uh, wanted to deal with issues of sexuality and um, areas that weren't being described as overtly and flagrantly in among other rock and roll artists. Uh, but both Bowie and Lou Reed also wanted some le level of success. And mm -hmm. so I think they navigated between those two mm -hmm. often conflicting ideas. But also that's why it took all those different elements to bring things together like a Ziggy Stardust concept that really drew from New York, drew from English ideas. It's, it's how the Velvet Underground became one of the most influential bands in the history of, of popular music. Uh, and then his second solo uh, outing in Transformer that David Bowie produced would be his most successful. Yeah, you sort of, I think, answered my final question, which was, what do you think the, the kind of lasting influence of the Velvet Underground is? You know, what was so wild about doing this film and doing it when we did, coming out of the Trump era, entering into the first season of COVID, um, mm -hmm. is you really felt like this was this sort of endangered planet that we were visiting every day in the film, in the, in the archives, in the whole sense of a cultural community, of a creative community, swapping ideas and, and being in very close physical proximity to each other in ways we could, couldn't be during COVID mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and ways that we were pulled apart from each other in the Trump years, you know, and, and in our digital life and culture and all the ways that we exist today. It made for the uniqueness of this time to be underscored, the preciousness of it. And, I, and we felt like we were putting it in a context that people could share it again and see it again in, in, in its sort of totality. And that hopefully that could be inspiring. And it could be inspiring to young people who may not know a lot about this time. Uh, and it could be inspiring to people who miss things about this time and the way that we all behaved in times in the past where we could all physically, you know, cohabitate. Mm -hmm. Well, it is a fascinating film. It's The Velvet Underground. It's Todd Haynes' new project. Todd, thanks so much for coming on Livewire to talk about it. Thanks, you guys. It was a real pleasure. That was Todd Haynes right here on Livewire. His new documentary, The Velvet Underground, is available right now on Apple+. Plus. We got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to hear some incredible music that blends jazz and soul and R&B from Melanie Charles. So stay with us.
Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this week hails from Brooklyn and has spent the past few decades blending jazz, soul, and R&B in ways that have caught the attention of the New York Times, NPR's Tiny Desk, SZA, and even Gorillaz, among others. Her forthcoming album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women, pays homage to black women in music and also really does this amazing job of breathing new energy into these classic songs by Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughn and a bunch of others. We're so excited to have her on the show. Melanie Charles, welcome to Livewire. Hi. <laughs> um, I have really been enjoying your music it's just so hard to describe because it, it just – I feel like you bring in so many different elements. Uh, one of them, uh, you're a flautist, which you just don't – you don't see a lot in, in, in music these days outside of maybe the classical space. When did you start playing flute? I started playing flute around junior high school, actually. I went to IS318 um, in Brooklyn. Actually, it's the same junior high that Jay-Z went to, fun whoa, fact. Whoa. But not at the same time, obviously. He's right. a few years older than me. Um, and he, not- he notably uses flute in Big Pimpin'. <laughs> Maybe there there's a, a connection. connection. I, I guess so. Maybe there's something there. But yeah, yeah, like at that time, I was doing a lot of the Miss America talent competition pageants and stuff. Like I grew up in like talent show pageant world. And when it came time to choose our instruments, I was out of class. I was I was in one of those competitions. So by the time I got to school, they stuck me with the flute and I was so (laughs) upset. Like I wanted saxophone or trumpet and they were like, look, all we have is flute. So deal with it. Um, But of course, I ended up falling in love with the instrument. So, yeah, it started back then. and I started classically trained. I was playing in the orchestra. I also doubled on piccolo as well so yeah with time i found a way to incorporate my flute with the other styles of music that i'm doing the the title of this album is y'all don't really care about black women which is um a pretty provocative title and i think it's sort of right in there what the, what the message is that you're that you're looking to express i'm wondering how you how you arrived at the decision to name the, the album that so, you know, when Verve Records approached me to do this remix project, you know, they have a Verve remix series that they do. And usually they just get different producers, DJs to come in and flip um, songs. But of course, me being the artsy person that I am, I wasn't doing regular remixes. I was really doing reimaginings. And, you know, by the time it came for me to start choosing the songs, it was during the lockdown. It was around the time that Brianna was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. And it just really was a rude awakening and a reminder that black women in this country are really not protected and cared for. And, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, One of the people that I celebrate in this album is Nina Simone. There's a famous interview where she talks about how one of the promoters didn't pay her. And so she had to show up with a shotgun in order for the man to pay. Do you you know about this? 
I think I've heard that story. Yeah. <laughs> you it's know, a, it's a famous one. <laughs> the title just suddenly came to me one day. It just hit me. And the label, God bless them. At first, they were a little bit like, geez, like, are you sure? That's kind of not a very warm title. And I was like, yeah, but it, but it's true, you know, and they and they had to agree with that. And I'm really glad that it's been really well received just by hearing the title. I noticed people are, are already interested. So mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what song are we going to hear? You're going to hear Woman of the Ghetto. It was the first single that we put out on this project. It is a remake uh, uh, sung by the great Marlena Shaw. She's the only woman that I reimagined that is still alive. Oh. Um, so hopefully, Marlena, if you're out there, I hope you like this flip. I hope you like it. <laughs> well, let's hear it. This is uh, Melanie Charles here on Livewire. Her new record is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. ghetto listen to me legislators how do you raise your kids in the ghetto how do you raise your kids in the ghetto feed one child Starve another. Tell me, tell me, legislator. How do you break your bread? Yeah, ghetto. How do you make your bread in the ghetto? Baked from the soul of the dead in the ghetto.
children learn just the same as yours. Long as nobody tried to shut the door, they cry with pain when the knife cuts deep. They close their eyes when they won't sleep. You sitting up there in your ivory tower, 60 stories high. Now you may have been in one ghetto, but have you lived there at all? Places like Watts, Detroit, Fillmore, Chicago. I got a shout out, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a Melanie Charles coming to you live from Bushwick. Ah, full performance. Full. Her new album is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. Melanie, thank you so much for coming on Livewire and sharing that with us. That was really incredible. Thank you for having me, Luke. Thank you for having me, Elena. All right, before we hit the road, a little preview of what's coming up next week on the show. We are going to be talking to Rachel Bloom. Uh, She was co-creator and star of that show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which was so good. She also wrote an amazing book of essays, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. So we're going to talk to her about that. Then we're going to talk to Natalie Diaz about her book, Post-Colonial Love Poem. Then we are going to hear some music uh, from one of my favorite artists going of late, Kevin Morby. And of course, as always, we are going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? What minor childhood grievance are you still waiting for an apology for? (laughs) I think things are going to get kind of real next week. I really hope nobody from my family responds. (laughs) All right. So if you want to respond to our listener question, you can uh, send those in via Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Nikki Six, Todd Haynes, and Melanie Charles. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Christopher Buderlein of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be 
one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 